the dialogue that's going on right now between China and Africa and the West and US and Europe and Africa, there's a disconnect on a monumental proportion. The US-European offer simply is inadequate. You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. This show has been regularly discussing Beijing's support for sustainable development initiatives around the world, its provision of aid, technical expertise and finance to developing countries under the South-South Cooperation umbrella, and the numerous infrastructure projects that China is undertaking in Europe, Africa, Latin America, and Asia as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. A common goal in several of the episodes in this season of the podcast has been to nuance the understanding of China's recent activities, better understand its motives, and to reflect on Beijing's future strategies and actions. Much of the recent focus in Western media reports on China has tended to highlight the damage that COVID has potentially caused to Beijing's reputation abroad. There have also been growing concerns in some parts of the world on how China will react to certain countries defaulting on the huge loans that these countries have taken from China for the construction of expensive but much-needed infrastructure projects. But not everybody shares such concerns, and indeed there are numerous voices that regularly highlight Beijing's support for multilateral institutions or for globalization in general and its ability to finance and undertake major development projects that the West has long neglected. To discuss some of these issues, I'm joined by Eric Olander, the co-founder of the China Africa Project, an independent multimedia organization that explores China's engagement with Africa. Eric Olander is a journalist with over three decades of experience reporting, producing, and managing newsrooms for some of the world's leading media organizations, including CNN and the BBC World Service. He speaks fluent Mandarin Chinese and has a master's degree in international public affairs with a focus on Chinese foreign policy from the University of Hong Kong. Eric also co-hosts a very popular weekly China in Africa podcast. Among the issues that Eric and I discussed in this episode are the following. China's global image and reputation, the politics of a Chinese COVID vaccine, and the benefits as well as challenges associated with the ambitious Standard Gauge Railway Project in Kenya. Eric, welcome to the show. I've been so very impressed with the work that you're doing at the China Africa Project, and I'm a big, big fan of your podcast. Well, the feeling is all mutual. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Congratulations on starting it up this year. And you've had some great guests and some great discussions. It's really helped inform me in terms of how I see a lot of these issues. Thanks, Eric. There are just so many things that I wish to discuss with you. But let's begin with an overarching issue. And there appears to be some consensus on this matter. And that relates to China's global image which certain um, surveys, a recent survey shows that China's global image has actually plummeted because of COVID. And there's all of this talk of governments trying to apply diplomatic pressure on Beijing. And there's been, you know, surprisingly negative views of China's COVID performance in countries that are close to China, like Japan and South Korea and Australia. And you, of course, I'm told you're based in Vietnam. And I just wanted to know, I mean, you know, what are your views on this? Do you see the kind of image that China has been trying to project, which has often been very positive? Is that being battered even in, in a country like Vietnam? Well, not even just saying even in a country, because China and Vietnam, of course, have had a difficult relationship. But what are your perceptions? Um, 
on this matter from Asia, where you're based currently. Yeah, it's interesting that you use the word consensus because anything that relates to China and the word consensus, the argument tends to fall apart pretty quickly because there is no consensus. The survey that you're referring to is the Pew Research Center survey that came out. Now, they surveyed advanced economies, South Korea, Japan, uh, Nordic countries, Europe, the United States. And in those countries, it's a highly contentious relationship. And so it's not surprising amid COVID, human rights concerns about Xinjiang, Hong Kong, confrontation in the South China Sea, obviously trade. Trump is a polarizing factor in all of this. Let's not forget that Boris Johnson also is a polarizing figure. So put all of that into the sauce bowl, mix it up, and you don't get consensus, at least as it looks from uh, developing countries looking to China. So for example, while the Pew survey came out and was historic lows in terms of public opinion towards the Chinese, Afrobarometer, which is the most reputable public opinion survey agency in Africa, came out with their survey, their latest survey that they do every three years on public perceptions of China, and they remain surprisingly strong. A majority of people have a favorable view of China. Now, that may come as a surprise to a lot of your listeners who oftentimes will pick up on social media trends or they'll see in international media a lot of the negative coverage of the Chinese in a place like Africa. But that doesn't necessarily paint the whole picture because it's a very, very complex mosaic of China's engagement in a place like Africa where people have complex emotions about it. So on the one hand, they don't necessarily like the debt. They don't necessarily like the presence of the Chinese immigrants in any culture is a controversial issue. But on the other hand, they see the roads, the infrastructure, they like techno phones, they like star times, they like all these consumer brands that are coming in. They love the fact that the Chinese are absolutely engaged in Africa, they're present, they're showing up, they're not lecturing. There's a lot of the good and the bad sit side by side. Here in Asia, it's a different story. So Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, we can't really evaluate their relationship with China based on the present only, simply because the history here runs so deep. So in Vietnam, for example, it's in the mother's milk to distrust China. It is, I mean, it dates back thousands of years because China ruled Vietnam for a thousand years. And that is really what makes it so complicated. But at the end of the day, too, Vietnam and China are dependent on one another. That is, we're more Vietnam's dependent on China than China's dependent on Vietnam. Electricity is imported from China when the rivers run low here and the most energy, most of Vietnam's energy comes from hydroelectric. Uh, China's the largest market for Vietnam exports. Uh, there's so many ways of this dependency, but at the same time, there's a lot of historical tension that exists there. Same with Japan, same with South Korea. But a lot of people outside of Asia don't realize is that World War II is still unsettled here. So the island disputes, the tensions, the issues over comfort women between Japan and South Korea. There are so many aspects of World War II that still roil underneath the surface in relationships. And that complicates the relationship with China as well. I'm glad you mentioned the Afrobarometer survey. And, and I remember referring to this in my own publications, and I have done so over the years, that largely, at least in terms of perceptions within Africa about China's role is is positive, is increasing, the, the whole idea of the China model of development is not considered to be negative. And we'll return to China and Africa in a moment, Eric. My initial idea was to actually get you to reflect, and if I can request you to do so, about the fact, and I agree that there is no consensus in that sense. Perhaps there is this feeling of a consensus in the global north, not so much in, in the global south. I feel that China is, on the one hand, fighting on all fronts because there's the spat with Australia, emerging new conflict with India, you know, and there is this tension with the US. And, and I'm wondering whether you believe that China is feeling a bit isolated and whether this isolation is resulting in some sort of a renewed attempt at cultivating even closer relations with countries that are more likely to support Beijing in international arenas. And perhaps this is also a nice opportunity for China to project even, you know, a, a new attempt to project itself as a strong champion of the current global order and, and supporting, you know, new and current forms of multilateralism. So do you feel this kind of isolation resulting in certain new initiatives coming from Beijing? 
The word isolation is not what I would use to describe it. I spoke with a think tank scholar last week, and he said that there's a perception and a feeling that Beijing and that China's under attack. And, and, it, and that was his word, not mine. And, and I do think that the combination of what's going on on the border with India, Australia, the United States, obviously tensions that exist with Japan are, are longstanding and whatnot, island disputes in the South China Sea, the various confrontations with Europe now, and the fact that the Chinese are having, it's hard to tell if it's intentional, that is, they're dialed up this wolf warrior diplomacy, this aggressive, brutish diplomacy that Wang Yi, the foreign minister, goes to Europe and starts threatening the Swedes not to give Hong Kong protesters the Nobel Prize, and that roils everybody up. And if you see on Twitter the nationalism that's there and this kind of, again, in your face, we're going to knock you down. I mean, all the pictures of PLA troops doing you know, exercises in Tibet and threats of confronting the United States in the South China Sea. It's not surprising that people are kind of like, you know, recoiling from all of this. Now, are they doing that from a point of view of confidence or weakness? That's hard to tell. And again, China is such a big, complicated mess of a place. It might be both at the same time. I, after 35 years of studying Chinese, being in China, doing my graduate degree there, working as a journalist there, being a junior diplomat there, I've, I've learned to be extraordinarily humble about broad brush statements about anything involving China. But we are in a moment right now where the international order is absolutely in transition. The United States is withdrawing from its traditional roles. It's been doing that for years that even predate Trump to some extent. Obama was not that engaged in Africa after all either. At the same time, China is in ascendance and sees this as an opportunity to you know, exert influence in a way that it feels is a return to its normal place atop the hierarchy, especially here in Asia, where it sees itself as the hegemon and the preeminent power. It doesn't see it in the same way that we see it, which is an aggressive power as the West looking in towards China. They see it as, again, a natural resumption of them atop the hierarchy. And, and they may feel right now that this is a difficult period, but looking at the long term, they're going to grind through it and get to the other end where they will have this harmonious world that Chinese propaganda always talks about. Who knows? But it is a definitely a period of contention. I believe they've overplayed their hand in Europe. I believe that they have a lot more popularity in developing countries than people in the global north give them credit. And I think that at the end of the day, they have an enormous amount of leverage over a country like Australia and Canada, these smaller, you know, so-called global north countries where Australia depends on China for trade. And they are starting to turn the levels of that levers of that power. And what happens when China starts to divert its iron ore purchases from Australia to Guinea and to Brazil and tens of billions of dollars goes away out of the Australian economy? We haven't gotten to that point yet, but I'm not sure if Australians really understand the ramifications of pushing back so hard on their largest trading partner. And the United States as well, by the way. We're, we're undergoing that same dilemma as well. I was speaking with a colleague of mine based in Beijing, and we've been collaborating for several years. And he was saying that not everybody in Beijing actually agrees with this kind of assertive wolf warrior diplomacy tactics. And there is actually a pushback there too, where you know, people within influential people in the policy establishment would prefer a much more humble approach, uh, which is more perhaps suited to the Chinese way of doing business rather than this kind of assertive approach, which one often in China associates with the Americans, you know, talking loudly and, and saying we are number one, whereas China often tries to project itself in, in more humble uh, terms. I want to get into something that you have written about on your website, and that has to do with the COVID vaccine. And while, of course, as you just mentioned, you know, there's been this kind of push for greater diplomatic ties, cultivating more, you know, closer relations, etc., it seems that if China is able to, of course, develop an effective COVID vaccine and have this freely made available to all of its favorite partner countries, that would have considerable appeal and would, of course, bolster, boost the kind of reputation and, and you know, the, the feeling of goodwill 
between China and its um, you know partners. But just like the Russian vaccine, we know very little about the progress that the Chinese pharmaceutical companies and research institutions have been making in this field. So what are your thoughts on this? And one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about is also when I'm in the field in in many parts of Africa, I feel that China, unlike the West, of course, hasn't really engaged very directly with primary healthcare coverage or improving or funding healthcare to the same extent as many other Western donors do. So is this an area you feel that China can perhaps step up? So one thing has to do with the vaccine, and the other one has to do with much more long-term funding, long-term expertise within healthcare. Let's talk about the vaccine first. And what I call it is a high-risk, high-reward gamble that they're playing here with the vaccine. And again, we don't know a lot. But what we do know is that President Xi Jinping and Chinese diplomats up and down the continent have made this commitment that said when they have a vaccine available and it's tested and it's ready, they will make it available. Now, a little bit of an asterisk came up a couple of weeks ago. So all summer since the World Health Assembly speech that President Xi gave earlier this spring when he first made that announcement that this will be a what he called a global public good. The implication on a global public good is that it will be free for developing countries. Now, last week, there was a tweet that came out that said, uh, we will have it priced uh, reasonably and fair, something like that. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, wait, oh, oh, so you're going to charge for this thing. Now, that changes the dynamic a little bit because the Gavi price has gotten down. That's the the global vaccine accord. They've gotten their price down to about $3 per, per dose. That's the guarantee for developing countries. We still don't know what the Chinese are going to charge, what are going to be the details of it. And who's going to qualify for free, who's going to get subsidized, who's going to get what the price will be, whatnot. So there's a lot of questions. That's question number one. Question number two is, again, this perception of made in China being low quality. And this came up about a month and a half ago when Transin, Transin is the big phone company based out of Shenzhen that very few people outside of Africa know anything about, but it is the company that dominates the African mobile phone market. They have more than 50% share of the smartphone market, 60% share of the of the feature phone market. They are the number one player. And they had a scandal that broke out from 2018 to mid-2019 or so. Viruses were embedded into the phone at the supply along the supply chain. So people bought their phone brand new and they had malware built into it. And Transin, in typical Chinese fashion, issued a press release, didn't address it, didn't communicate, and said, let's just move on. And it shows you the difficulties that the Chinese have in engaging civil society. They just have no experience in doing these kinds of things. But what that did for the, in relation to the vaccine was it reinforced this idea of, Oof, made in China, I don't know if I can trust it. On top of that, remember that counterfeit imported vaccines and medications and pharmaceuticals into Africa is a chronic problem coming from China, China and India. So already people are skeptical about made in China for a number of different reasons. So the Chinese have a communication challenge on their hand. Number one is what's it going to cost to reassuring people on the quality and the fact that the Chinese right now in China have released the vaccine and are vaccinating people before phase three clinical trials are complete makes a lot of people go, "Ooh, okay, ah, a little bit nervous about that. Now, if they are able to pull this off. So that's the risk because you know what will happen if somebody dies from a vaccine made in China. That is going to be on Twitter and Facebook in a second. And you see the China virus and the China vaccine and boom, that's the new Twitter meme. So that's the risk part of it. They have to handle this well. One of the challenges in Africa is the fact that a cold chain has to be maintained I think it's at minus 40 degrees Celsius, minus 90 degrees Fahrenheit for these vaccines. And maintaining that cold chain throughout the continent to distribute to hundreds of millions of people, if not a billion people, is an enormous challenge. Now, let's give the Chinese credit. They are experts in logistics. They have already built a pan-African logistics distribution network that routes through Addis Ababa that they ramped up in less than a month with the Jack Ma PPE donations. So they do have some experience with this. But one of the things that we learned also from the Jack Ma PPE donations was how corruption played a role. So in places like Somalia, Kenya, Tanzania, a lot of those materials went missing. Will that happen with the vaccine as well? 
how do we make sure that the vaccine is equally distributed? So that gets to this other question of what will they do for logistics? Will they simply hand it over to the UN and say, you know what, we've made the vaccine available. It's up to you to distribute it. Will they give it to host countries and say, again, we've given it to you. It's up to you to distribute it. Or will they do it bilaterally and do it themselves? We still don't know. Again, the Chinese suffer from being terrible at communication. So there's a lot of questions right now, but if they are successful, so I've you know, illuminated the risks and the risks are enormous, but the rewards are absolutely huge. And a scholar that I spoke with in Nigeria in preparation for a show we're gonna be doing with him, he said, and this is his word, if China is able to successfully eradicate COVID-19 from the African continent, quote, all will be forgiven. That's an amazing thing. Debt, Guangzhou, pick all the scandals you want. If they get rid of COVID because of this vaccine, all will be forgiven. So the expectations are running so high for what the Chinese will do here. You raise several very interesting perspectives here, because when I've been studying China in Malawi and also in Zambia, I see a a shift, you know, there's been traditionally a focus on how Chinese companies and Chinese actors would be more sort of responsible for doing certain things. But I see a certain, maybe a slight shift where there is much more of an interest to engage with the UN, engage with even Western donors try to, you know, cultivate some sort of a trilateral partnership. So I I get this feeling that China has been slowly but surely, perhaps before COVID at least, been laying the foundations for much more of a partnership with other countries in a third country. It could be, you know, an African country or Asian or Latin American country. So if those foundations are solid, perhaps that would give some sort of credibility for even distributing medicines or vaccines jointly. But my gut feeling is that for something as sensitive as this, the Chinese uh, institutions would, of course, or the authorities would use Chinese institutions, Chinese actors for distribution. You need an enormous scale. And they're not talking about this just for Africa. When he said global public good, Xi Jinping was talking about for South America, South Asia, Southeast Asia, where I am. So the scale is absolutely huge. And so the Chinese, even as big as they are, don't have that resource and that capability to do that. So again, we still have to find out what they mean. They are evolving it. You know, we know for a fact that there are teams of people who are actually working on this problem right now in China to solve this and to think about this. And the Chinese are, again, very good at logistics and distribution. So if anybody can do it at that scale, this is the country, after all, that can produce 10 million iPhones in two weeks. (laughs) Let's talk about the pharmaceutical sector. And I wanted to ask you how you consider the Chinese operations, say, within medicines and, and vaccines and pharmaceuticals, how they're different from, say, what India is doing. Because India, of course, projects itself as the world's pharmacy, that it actually provides cheap, easily affordable and accessible drugs to many developing countries um, that aren't in a position to afford the more expensive variants coming from, from the US or from Europe. And that this has given India quite a bit of a you know, quite a lot of influence in, in many parts uh, of Africa. There's all of this medical tourism. But China hasn't, has, has, has China, that's the question, has China made certain inroads in this field in relation to pharmaceutical products? They have, and they, they followed a very similar approach as to what India did, is in addition to intellectual property theft, where they reverse engineered some drugs, that was a problem 10, 15 years ago. I think it's less of a challenge today, in part because many of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies are actually in China today, and Chinese companies are building their own pharmaceuticals, so IPR is less of an issue than it was 10, 15 years ago. And what the Chinese did alongside the Indians was is they waited for a lot of these drugs to kind of move out of their, uh, their, their copyright protection, and then they would make the generic version for 
pennies on the dollar. India did a much better job at kind of running with that and building the scale. China turned inwards and to focus on its domestic market. And so in some ways, and again, I, I have to be honest with you, I'm speaking a little bit out of turn here as pharmaceuticals are not my expertise. So I, I want to put that disclaimer out there. But at the same time, the domestic market in China became much more lucrative for pharmaceutical companies. So they turned inward and less focusing on developing countries and developing regions like in Africa and South Asia and whatnot. Nonetheless, companies like Fosun, which is the Shanghai-based pharmaceutical conglomerate, uh, have been very effective in, in, in distribution of, for example, say, anti-malarial medications. We've just done a show on Artiquic, which is the uh, anti-malarial medication produced by the Chinese for the Comoros Islands, where they effectively wiped out malaria in the Comoros. So they, they are good in some areas. I don't think that they're as competitive as the Indians are in terms of the mass and the scale, because, again, they turned inwards to focus on their more lucrative domestic market. Moving to uh, much more of a focus on China in Africa, or how Africans actually view China, because I often feel that we, we tend to treat this whole continent as, as one, and, and there's just so much diversity, and there's so much diversity of opinions. Is the relationship between, say, African countries, African citizens or their leaders with the Chinese counterparts, is that relationship one of convenience? Or do you think there is some sort of at attraction to Chinese culture, Chinese practices, the Chinese record of eradicating extreme poverty, the Chinese model of development? And I'm asking you this because India, of course, has been trying to project its soft power, this whole idea of yoga and Bollywood and democracy, this whole cultural appeal which in many ways is much more of an advantage for India than it is for China. So how do you see Africans viewing China? Do they consider the Chinese culture to be appealing? I don't think the Chinese culture resonates that much in most of Africa. I think people like to watch Kung Fu movies. Those are very, very popular, as they are in many parts of the world. So characters like Bruce Lee are still to this day, people go, wow. You know, I love Bruce Lee, but I don't think there's a an appeal to the culture there. I think that these are their interests. The narrative that is very compelling, and this is a narrative that is poorly, poorly understood uh, in the global north, is the story, China's development story. And I, and I will tell you that I have lived this firsthand. My first time going to China was 1989. When I first went to China, there were ration coupons. Everybody wore either black, brown, black, blue. It was no color anywhere. There were indoor plumbing was, for the most part, an elite thing. I lived in an upper middle class home in Beijing, and we had to go to communal toilets. There was very few cars. Only less than one per 100 homes had a telephone in it. And in the space of 40 years, within my lifetime, they've emerged to be the second largest economy in the world, and in many ways, some of the most advanced economies in the world in, within China. And people looking outside from that and see that example and say, it shows it can be done. And I wrote a column the other day saying, pity the poor American diplomat. <laughs> this was after the, the, the debate that was uh, between Biden and Trump. And, and I said, the American diplomat, and this can be, pick anybody, pick Sweden, Norway, France, whatever, you know, sits down with an African stakeholder. And the African stakeholder says, what do you got for me? Let's talk. The American diplomat's gonna talk about human rights, civil rights, good governance, it's going to talk about LGBTQ issues, it's going to talk about all these different things. It's going to talk about why you shouldn't engage with the Chinese, and the African will, diplomat or stakeholder will listen very politely and say, okay, great. The Chinese stakeholder will then come in the next day for the meeting and say, and then the African diplomat will say, what do you got for me? And I've got a road, a hospital, a bridge, an airport, a telecom network. I've got scholarships to study in China. Who do you think he's going to respond to? The dialogue that's going on right now between China and Africa and the West and US and Europe and Africa, there's a disconnect on a monumental proportion. The US-European offer simply is inadequate. And this is something that Jude keeps talking about in your previous shows, Jude Moore at the Center for Global Development. There's a lot of resources in the US and Europe to bring to a discussion, but they choose not to. And so the reason why the Chinese are bringing this to the table is because it's their own story as well. 
they have this example that a road is life. It's a saying that, that, that the Chinese love to tell you about. A road is life. I forget how they translate it, but it's something to that effect. But I'll go to one academic conference after another with Chinese diplomats and scholars, and they keep talking about a road is life. And what do they mean by that? But by building infrastructure, the farmer then can more easily bring crops to market. That economic activity will generate the revenue needed to pay for the infrastructure and thus to grow the economy. That's what the Chinese have done for the past 40 years. They've built an incredible infrastructure. And you've spent time in China and you ride the bullet trains, you see the roads, you see the electric vehicle charging networks, you see the maglev trains in Shanghai. I mean, it is just amazing what they've done. So they're bringing that thought to developing countries. And the response in developing countries is, yes, that is more relevant for where we are right now. Now, there's a second part of this, too, on the political part. Countries like South Africa, for example, really like the fusion of the state and party model. So in China, the state is subservient to the party, the Communist Party. That is an idea that the African National Congress actually really likes. They love the idea of permanent power, the state being subservient to the party. And so that's one of the reasons why the Chinese have helped the ANC set up uh, training academies for their politicians in their countries. And that is happening throughout the continent, where party-to-party -party ties run very, very deep. So there are interests, there are there's some of the ideals that they like, this question of social and economic rights being predominant over civil and political rights is something that in the global north people don't understand, but in much of the global south, they easily understand that trade-off. Food, shelter, security, those are the primary concerns that people have in their day-to-day -day lives, and the Chinese speak that language to them. I think you're absolutely right there because... Um... My impression is, and, and this is based on interviews with key stakeholders and politicians and uh, higher level officials in the bureaucracy of many countries on the African continent, it is particularly appealing when the Chinese come and show something concrete. It is not just about providing funding, which is also important for health and education, but something that is tangible. In fact, that is the word that is often used by Chinese ambassadors. You know, look at your capital five years ago and look at it now, you can actually see it. This kind of visibility, which comes with infrastructure projects, is something that really has helped China promote its uh, image of doing something productive, something constructive that is not hidden. And I think it is also a bit appealing for citizens when they can actually see something concrete in front of them, rather than, let's say, budget support, which is extremely important that often the Western donors fund. And without that, health systems and education frameworks would suffer. But it is not often seen to be as visible. The other part of this, which is really important, is what, I, is what we call GSD. Now, there's a rude way of saying it and a polite way of saying it. Get stuff done is the polite way of saying it. In Ghana, it was 18 months from the first negotiation on the bauxite for infrastructure deal. 18 months later, a shovel was hitting the ground to actually start building that infrastructure. 18 months. That is remarkable. Right now, we are seeing the new Lagos to Ibadan Railway, the standard gauge railway, start to roll, and it's incredible to see. And Nigerians have said if that was done by a Nigerian company, it would have taken 25 years to do. The ability for China to execute and deliver these complex projects is remarkable, and they deserve an enormous amount of credit for that. These are not easy you know, countries to operate in, to build railways in a place like Nigeria or Kenya and to build roads in Ghana, in rural Ghana. It's difficult. It's not easy to do. And it shouldn't be dismissed on that. And that ability to deliver is something that people look at with an enormous amount of respect. Now, the debt, the complexity of all that, there are other issues that go with it. But just there's a road now, there's an airport, there's a port, there's you know all those different things, as you pointed out. I can see it. I can feel it. It's good. That's correct, because in addition to the track record of what China has done within its own borders, there is this um, idea that is often promoted that, you know, we, whatever we promise, we'll deliver, that, uh, you know, we'll never renegade on our promises, and we'll make sure that things are done quickly and on time. So I think that kind of track record is, is, is very appealing. You know, I spoke with Jude 
uh, more our friend um, last uh, week and I asked him the same question and which I wish to ask you while there's this kind of criticism and suspicion of all of these attempts that or or the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative and all of these projects on the African continent but also elsewhere and this kind of suspicion often you hear in in the US and, and some European capitals why has the West, if you can call it the West, not come up with a similar plan? Why has there been this kind of reluctance to invest in Africa's infrastructure? There's no political will to do that. I mean, remember we had, the, I think it was called the Blue Dot Plan was something like that, the Blue Dot, remember that? That was the, the US alternative to the Belt and Road, which was vaporware. There's no constituency in the United States or for that matter in, in Europe that wants to commit tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer money, either through direct grants or through loan guarantees and Exim bank credits and whatnot to do that when in fact U.S. infrastructure is decrepit. I mean, the politics of building roads in Africa when your average road in New York City sucks is just, it doesn't make any sense. So that's never going to happen. And there's no force in Washington, D.C. who's lobbying for this. So in the battleground in Brussels and in Washington, D.C. for how to allocate the pie, there's no one saying we need to give a huge slice of that pie to Africa. And also, bear in mind that it's high risk as well, as we're seeing with the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya, where we're looking at a default right now. Now, again, one can make the argument that the Chinese shouldn't have lent the Kenyans so much money, and therefore it's defaulting. That's a reasonable argument to make. But at the end of the day, it's high, high risk. In China, the political consequences of that are contained, or they're hidden. In Western democracies, they're not. And there's not a lot of support for, for doing much in Africa, much less commit precious resources. Don't forget that the United States and Europe now are beyond broke. We've been passing $1 trillion relief package after another. So money is not easily found to be able to commit what, and to compete with the Chinese on that. I think to Jude's point is that even in where the Americans have strengths and competence, we're not committing. So where we are strong in technology, in education, in governance, we're just not showing up. So the Chinese have an advantage built in because they're actually going. They're actually on the ground. They're actually there. Xi Jinping is meeting with the smallest African president, I mean, from Togo and from, you name it, from Malawi, that are not geopolitically important. But he'll have a five-minute sit-down with him or a call with him regularly. To get Donald Trump to speak with an African president or prime minister is inconceivable. So if that's not happening, then imagine trying to organize Congress to allocate 15, 20, 30, 100 billion dollars for African infrastructure, impossible. In addition to what you just said, I think there is still this perception that everything that happens in Africa is bad. It is not just high risk, but it's just, you know, not worth it. And it's this kind of you know, it's all about Ebola and uh, problems and, and uh, corruption. And so there is really no incentive to, to even reach out, to even try to engage and, and to think about Africa as a huge potential rather than branding Africa as a problem area. And they don't see it as an opportunity. When I'm in Washington, I try to spend at least a month every year in Washington. The conversations that I have are surreal in the fact that they, are, they feel like they're 40 years old. Again, as you pointed out, it's Ebola, it's AIDS, it's HIV. And I think there's a certain comfort with this, the stereotypes, the archetypes of Africa in the minds of, of Europeans and, and, and Americans. And in my, my co-host, Kobus van Staden, on our podcast, he said something very interesting about China's relationship with Africa as it relates to Europe, is that he said, China robs Europe of its narrative in Africa. Europe, for the longest time, had this kind of patriarchal, paternalistic role with Africa. It's like parent to child, you know, and it was this, we'll take care of you. Without our aid, what would you be? And now they have a choice. They're saying, you know what? We don't want your aid. We want trade. And you know what? We want more companies like Transin 
that when they did their IPO on the Shanghai Star Exchange, got valued at a valuation of $7 billion, all from a business built in Africa. When we look at Star Times with 33 million customers in the pay TV market, that is a company that is based in Beijing, but whose only customers are in Africa, 33 million customers. We don't have equals to that in the US. And getting American businesses to engage in Africa is an extraordinarily difficult challenge. And what they want is they want all of these guarantees. They said, give us the credit guarantees and we'll go. Well, you know, that's not how it works. And so again, the mindset just really isn't there. That's correct, because there is this feeling that a lot of private sector companies want some sort of cushioning to ward off or to, to somehow cushion the risk that they feel they will be taking if they engage with Africa. But this kind of negative perception, uh, Eric, on, on Africa is also prevalent in parts of China. And um, I wanted to pick your brain on this. And given that you've lived in China before, and of course, I've been traveling to China back and forth for the last decade or so, numerous visits, and I teach there. And it's not like they're negative or they're racist, but there have been numerous reports of racism against African citizens, kind of condescending behavior. And in Guangzhou, of course, in the last few months, there have been all of these reports of African citizens being quarantined and, and being sub subject to harassment. And, so, and this kind of negative perception is perhaps not very unlike what it is in, in some parts of, of, of the Western world or even in, in India, where there are very sort of racist views on, on Africans. So, so what, what do you think? I mean, is it, is it that Chinese, I mean, do Chinese have a problem with, with Africa? Do they know enough about Africa? Or is it more, as some would say, they're not very politically sophisticated or politically correct? Uh, they're not really racist. It's just that sometimes what they say or what they articulate just is, it just comes out in a, in, in, in incorrectly. So just the same way that we find offense in the idea of talking about Africa, there is no Africa. 54 countries, you know, thousands of dialects, thousands of cultures, a diversity that is just mind-blowing. And, and so wrapping that all up, wrapping Egypt and South Africa together in the same place is kind of, what? How does that work, right? The same is true for China. This is an enormous place. So these broad brush generalizations become broken down very quickly. Now let's talk about Guangzhou very quickly because that got a lot of attention. So Guangzhou was, it, it is hard to overstate the scar that that's left on African civil society. It is just the bitterness to this day remains. Now, what's interesting is that what happened in Guangzhou compared to, say, what happens on any given Tuesday in the banlieue of Paris is incomparable. I mean, the abuse that, that is, befalls African migrants in the, in the Parisian suburbs is on an order of magnitude not even comparable to what we saw in Guangzhou. But what was different about Guangzhou was that the French have never said to Africa, we are brothers. We are equals. We're both from developing countries and developing regions. We're both the victims of U.S. or European colonialism and U.S. Cold War and Russian Cold War ideology and politics. We are different than them. China will lecture you till you are blue in the face that says we have never invaded, conquered, or colonized another country. That's what they will tell you. When you go to the foreign ministry and you have meetings with people, they first kind of force a lecture on you about how they've never done that. And so then when, what happened one day in April is that people in all across Africa started opening up their social media feeds and seeing this discrimination that was blatant and visible. I mean, it was, it was terrible. And there it was. This is not what brothers do to other brothers. Now, the fact that that happened by itself was, okay, remember that there was a sign in a McDonald's in Guangzhou, and this was a big social media trend that picked up during this whole crisis. And... One of the employees, they put up a sign, they said, we're not serving black people. And this was more out of a concern of serving foreigners because of COVID-19. That's the context, the cultural context behind it. Black people are visibly identifiable as foreigners, and they're seen as more threatening than, say, white people. So they kind of just said, we're going to put a sign up saying, we don't want black people coming into McDonald's. McDonald's immediately does what McDonald's do. They shut down the restaurant. 
They posted a sign up saying, we're very, very sorry. They forced all of their employees into sensitivity training. And more or less within a week, that story went away. How did the Chinese handle Guangzhou on the governmental policy level? Now, what they did is they went to presidents and prime ministers and foreign ministries and diplomats, and they said, we're very, I don't know if they said, we're sorry, but we regret what happened. This shouldn't have happened. They did all of that kind of, you know, acknowledgement that something went wrong. What did they do to African civil society and people? Nothing. They never once said the words that would have really helped. You know what? In all of the craziness of COVID-19, some of our brothers in Guangzhou got carried away to try and protect our people from this awful virus. They went too far. This happened. This shouldn't have happened. This is not how brothers treat each other. And for that, I, Foreign Minister Wang Yi or President Xi Jinping, bow, bow, I am sorry. So the question here, Eric, is why is it that the Chinese don't do this? Why is it that, is it, is it, a, is it a problem of communication? Is it not being adept at using these channels? Is it just, what is it that prevents them? It's all of that. I think, I think there's a bunch of factors. First of all, in, there is no, there's, the civil society in China does not have the same role that it does in other countries. So the government is not accustomed to responding to the needs of civil society. That's a very important point. And so when civil society was pressuring them, they went, you know what, we're putting the walls up. Number two, great powers don't apologize. I can't see the, I mean, I haven't seen, as far as I know, President Trump apologize for anything that's happened to African-Americans. So I don't think the Chinese are that unique. I haven't seen, you know, I, I just, I don't see this. So in one sense, that kind of humility that we're asking for from a major power like China just doesn't happen in politics and that admission of weakness. But that is strange because China has been projecting its humility and, and it would just be a... It says, it says it projects humility, but saying sorry is a really big ask. The other thing that I think is really important to note is that the experience of what happened in Guangzhou at that moment is not necessarily reflective of the total black and African experience in China. You will talk to countless you know, students, migrants, travelers, and whatnot, and say they have never experienced this type of racism. In fact, just like here in Vietnam, we have here in Vietnam, in, in my community that I live in, a number of African-Americans who have fled the United States because they are raising young African-American boys and don't want to subject them to the dangers of engaging with law enforcement. And they come to a country like Vietnam because they are seen as odd and foreign and exotic, but there's not the kind of blatant discrimination that they've encountered in the United States and other places like that. That is what a lot of people in China will tell you. So there is not a universal black experience in China. It is difficult in places like Guangzhou, but you go to other places like Beijing or Shanghai or in Zhejiang province where there are large African populations, and they will tell you a totally different story. We've, had a, we've interviewed a number of African students on our show, and we ask them genuinely, what has it been like for you? And they gush about it. And they're not being paid. There's no propaganda. They, they genuinely love the experience of being there. So it's a complicated place. Some people have a terrible experience. Some people have a great experience. The type of discrimination that exists against blacks in China often tends to be towards anybody non-Han Chinese. Chinese. The Han are 92, 93%. This is of the population. This is a mono-ethnic culture. They have no experience in dealing with multiculturalism. They generally are accustomed to dealing with white people. And then once you move outside of white people, it gets very complicated for them. So South Asians run into a lot of problems in China, as do Southeast Asians, as do Blacks and African Americans and whatnot. But it, there's a huge spectrum of that engagement. So I would urge everybody to not use what happened in Guangzhou as the template for everything in China. It's more complicated than that. move on to this famous railway project in Kenya. I had the pleasure of riding the Madaraka Express last year. It was just fantastic. Just, you know, getting to the station, 
and a beautiful station and you know everything is automatic in terms of tickets and you get into this fantastic compartment and the, the, the service is fantastic and there's no noise and it's just speeding through the countryside and I was talking to a lot of the passengers uh, on their way from Nairobi to Mombasa and largely it was a very positive image that I got they were saying that the ticket prices aren't too bad uh, we don't have to drive this long dangerous road lots of accidents usually take place I can relax it's air-conditioned so the general narrative was very positive and then of course there were others who I spoke with later on, who were very worried about this large, this, the largest infrastructure project in the country's history and whether the country would be able to pay back this debt. And you've written recently about this, about how President Kenyatta is, is just really um, getting you know, a lot of heat, a lot of criticism for this, uh, this project and, and the inability of his country to pay back. So on the one hand, I see that this is a fantastic project. On the other hand, it's something obviously that the country could not afford. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's not obvious that the country could not afford it. I mean, and the idea was that when this was first conceived, this was not supposed to be just a Kenya standard gauge railway. This was supposed to be an East African standard gauge railway so that Tanzania, Uganda, Burundi, all of those countries would link up together. The value of the standard gauge railway diminished considerably when China started getting cold feet on lending for big railway projects and when raising money from other sources dried up and it was very difficult. So all of a sudden that grand plan of standard gauge railways interconnecting all across East Africa, bringing products from the inland to the port of Mombasa, bringing products through into Dar es Salaam, into the Bagamayo port, all of those things started to fall apart. Now, that being said, they're slowly starting to make progress on it, but let's talk about the standard gauge railway in Kenya. So this is a railway that is now teetering on default. So the Kenya Railways has missed a $350 million payment to uh, the China Road and Bridge Corporation, their subsidiary, Africa Star, that runs the railway. Uh, they are not generating the sufficient revenue now to be able to pay it back. Right now, Kenyan taxpayers are subsidizing the railway to a tune of about $9.2 million a month. Clearly, that is not sustainable. But I often find the criticisms of, of this debt-financed infrastructure a little bit frustrating, in part because railway and this kind of infrastructure is almost never, as far as I know, and there might be some exceptions, profitable, especially within the first few years. Last time I checked, and I looked this up a couple of weeks ago, Germany subsidized its railway network by 18 billion euros last year, right? The New York City subway doesn't make any money. As far as I know, most, the SNCF in France certainly doesn't make any money. But what they do is they perform a very important service to facilitate the movement of goods and people and trade. That generates the, the income. Now, the problem is, is that when you have a a network that is kind of a network, but not really a network. So it goes from the port of Mombasa to Naivasha in the, in, in the Rift Valley, but it doesn't really go anywhere. So they need to build up the infrastructure around there to have the commerce in order to be able to, to do that. Now, some of the roads they're starting to build in will make it easier for truck to rail to port. That will start to come. So it might take some time. Now, in terms of the debt, and this is the big question, because this now, China is coming up to a crisis point in Africa and in Kenya in particular about this. What are they going to do about this $6 billion debt for the SGR? Already one payment's been missed. Will China force a payment on this? Probably not. And this is what we've seen throughout China's debt and renegotiations throughout Africa. And this is the whole debt trap. They're going to seize an asset out of this. There is no evidence whatsoever that China engages in this kind of debt trap narrative as it's been presented by the United States and so many people in Africa believe. It is a fantasy. In, as far as I know, and this is according to Deborah Braudigam at the Johns Hopkins University China-Africa Research Initiative, she, she corrected me in that article that you, that you pointed out, where I said that there's a contract out there that has the Port of Mombasa as a piece of collateral in the event of a default on the SGR loan. And Professor Braudigam pointed out, she said, no, 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 the port itself is not the piece of collateral. It's the revenue from the port that's a collateral. Now, let's go back to that negotiation. And, and since your podcast is really the perfect forum to talk about this, 
President Kenyatta, when he first opened negotiations with the Chinese, made it very clear to his Chinese counterparts that he did not want aid. This was the part of the whole culture movement in Africa to move away from aid into trade, into a more equitable relationship with the outside world. They had had 50, 60 years of this aid-dependent, charitable relationship with the U.S. and Europe, and Africans had said, we're done with this. We want a more equal relationship. The Chinese came in and said, you know what? Good, because we don't do aid. That is not in the Chinese kind of method of doing things. They're starting to do a little bit now, but for the most part, the Chinese are not good at aid. Giving away money for free is not a Chinese cultural value. So Kenyatta says, we need to put up some collateral in exchange for a $6 billion loan. What's the most valuable asset that Kenya has? It actually is the port of Mombasa that does generate a good, decent amount of cash flow. Now, that is an equitable relationship. Dan, if you take a mortgage out on your house, the bank says, we want to have some collateral. Usually it's the house. When you take a loan for the car, the bank says we want some collateral. There is always collateral on all in these relationships. So the fact that there is a piece of collateral like the revenue from the Port of Mombasa should not offend anybody simply because that is what big boy infrastructure deals actually look like. Now, the question is, will the Chinese collect on this? We still don't know. What we've seen out of Angola in the past couple of weeks is that they have reached some type of restructuring deal. The Chinese are not going to wipe away the debt. They're going to kick it down the road, possibly for a very, very long time, to relieve the current leadership in Africa of, these, of this dilemma that they're in now. Because with all this Chinese lending, there is a political component that there isn't necessarily with, say, coming from the U.S. and Europe and other traditional donors. And the Chinese recognize that if the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya fully implodes, like it looks like it's going to now, but if it does... That will be a black eye on President Xi. It will be a black eye for the standard for the Belt and Road, and it will certainly hurt Kenyatta and future initiatives that the Chinese do in Africa. And it will really reinforce this idea that Mike Pompeo at the State Department has been pushing about the debt trap narrative. So it's likely, based on what we've seen, based on the evidence, that they will kind of ease this debt burden off a little bit. That's probably where it's going now. When I have actually visited Kenya on several occasions and I've spoken to civil society activists and also my academic colleagues, some of the concerns haven't been about, you know, whether this is a good thing or not, or, or the debt, et cetera. It has been more about the lack of transparency. It is about not knowing, you know, what is in the contract. It is this kind of lack of information that journalists often complain about, you know, the secretive nature or this kind of suspicion that there's been some sort of uh, influence peddling, that ruling party has benefited in some way. All of these rumors, I think, just create this kind of feeling of uncertainty that translates into criticism. You know, there's been a slowdown, of course, all over the world in terms of the economy, and, and there's been a slowdown in, in China. And there are some concerns that perhaps there will be certain limits to Chinese generosity in terms of aid, but also limits to the kind of initiatives in terms of the big projects, the mega projects that China will be undertaking, not just in Africa, but also in other parts of the world, Latin America and Asia. So what are your thoughts on this? Do you see concerns about defaults and, and also concerns about perhaps also appealing to the domestic audience in China that, listen, we're going to more, you know, focus more on, on how things are within the country and not take all of these risks abroad? How do you see the, the future, I mean, of Chinese engagement in a post-COVID world? A couple different things. One is we have seen a massive, massive drop-off in infrastructure spending and loans and all of that engagement in uh, Latin and South America by the Chinese. I mean, it's gone down to almost nothing. There is a lot of good evidence that suggests that the Chinese appetite for these high-risk deals like the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya is now evaporated. Why? Not necessarily because of the public pressure for domestic, because they can control that very effectively in China, the domestic public opinion. What is really the key here is that individual bankers within the policy banks, their careers are being adversely affected by this. They've made commitments to, to lend that kind of money and what ended up happening is this didn't come through. So they are suffering themselves. So there's not the appetite from within the policy banks to say, you know what, we're going to build another big mega project. That's number one. Number two is the fact that China right now, though it's recovered 
better than anybody else from the COVID-19 downturn is still really in great need of economic revival. And they're going to turn inwards and they're going to start focusing a lot of that money inwards. That being said, you know, this is a $2 trillion banking system. Extracting out 50 to $60 billion is not the most complicated challenge. And this is coming from people like Chen Yunnan at the at the Overseas Development Institute and a lot of other scholars will say that the amounts of money that Africa needs are huge by African standards, but rather small by a $14 trillion GDP standard. That being said, the most important trend that you'll start to see over the next, say, 12 to 24 months and going forward is that the state-owned enterprises may start to pull back as they focus on domestic, but there's going to be more of an effort to push the private sector forward. Again, companies like Transon, Huawei, StarTimes, these companies are actually going to do a lot more in places like Africa. Finally, last, most important point that I want to leave you with. There's a general shift right now, and this is a very important point that, that people don't really fully understand, in the Chinese appreciation for the value that Africa brings to its foreign policy. Now, traditionally, Africa has been framed as an economic partner for, for, for different parts of the world. You extract resources and you sell things back. Well, China doesn't actually need most of what Africa sells today. Let's take away the strategic minerals like coltan, tantalum, cobalt, those kinds of very small strategic minerals off the table. But the oil, mineral, and timber that dominates about 70% of what China buys from Africa, China now can buy that from pretty much anywhere on the Belt and Road. Consider that in 2008, 30% of Chinese imported oil came from three African countries. Today, less than 18% comes from just one African country, Angola. So what is the value if it's not economic? It's politics. 54 votes at the UN, 54 votes at the World Health Organization, using it as a bludgeon to sign these letters at the UN against the United States, against Europe, on human rights, on Xinjiang, on Tibet, and all these different things. So the whole dynamic is changing away from economics and more toward politics. And that's also part of this trend. That's the backdrop of this shift away from these high, these high-end, very expensive, very risky deals that they're doing on infrastructure. Eric, it was great fun chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Global Dev Pod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to in pursuit of development at gmail.com.